Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to the 2017 Festival of Urbanism. My name is Dallas Rogers, I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Architecture, Design and Planning right here at the University of Sydney and I'll be chairing this fabulous session tonight on pop-up justice and the temporary city. I think we're going to hear some exciting projects today kind of in what I would call the tactical urbanism space. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, but before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners on the land on which we're meeting tonight. Of course, that is the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built, and as we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices here within the University of Sydney tonight, may we also respect the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianships of country. Now these, of course, are not idle words here at the University of Sydney. The Aboriginal context of land is certainly uh, important to my work on uh, global real estate and global land claiming. Uh, we also have a deep commitment to Aboriginal land knowledge systems and land management within the School of Architecture, Design and Planning. And up here on your screen is something that I'm very proud of. This comes out of the Festival of Urbanism this year. This is a crowdfunding scholarship to empower Aboriginal land councils to navigate the complexities of the New South Wales planning system. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of the Henry Hallahan Trust. The Henry Hallahan Trust is a research trust established at the University of Sydney. It's funded with a generous donation from uh, Warren Hallahan and his father, Henry, was a leading Australian developer an early advocate of the Australian town planning movement. I'd also like to acknowledge our co-sponsors for this event, so Meredith Hall from the Sydney Ideas, um, and this session is also co-sponsored by the School of Architecture, Design and Planning. But without any further ado, I'd like to get into the main program of this evening, and that, of course, is Pop-Up Justice and the Temporary City. And I believe that we've got a fairly organic set of papers coming in quick succession, three papers one after the other. So I'm going to introduce the speakers up front and get them to move through their papers organically. First up, we have Associate Professor Lee Stickles from our very own School of Architecture, Design and Planning here at the University of Sydney. I believe that Lee will be speaking first. Second up, we have Dr. Amelia Thorpe, who is the Research Director for Impact and Engagement, Director of the Environmental Law Programs and a Senior Lecturer at Law at the University of New South Wales. And then third up, we have uh, Tim Moore uh, from Sibling Architecture, and he's going to give us a Practitioner's Guide to Temporary Interventions in the City. After we hear from the three papers, we'll ask the three speakers to join uh, Professor Anne Forsythe for a panel discussion, and if we get there right at the end, I'll ask you, I'll ask for questions from the audience. We are running a Q&A style questions today. Some of you have filled out forms earlier in this evening. Uh, we might have time for some questions from the floor as well. So at this point, I'd like to invite up the, first of all, oh sorry, they've switched, they've done the switcheroo on me already. 
First up is uh, Timothy. Good evening. So the talk tonight is entitled Pop-Up Justice or Rethinking Relationships in the Temporary City. The documentation and celebration of temporary projects within architecture and urbanism during the first decade of the 21st century has had seen many cheerleaders in the next decade, from urban planners to property developers, politicians, publishers, citizens and architects. Our presentation tonight asks, how do we evaluate these projects when they, they often look the same but are doing completely different things? So tonight we'll, um, we probably won't speak from the position of a, a practitioner, um, architect, etc., um, in this paper or in the presentation, but as we drift across to the conversation, maybe uh, we'll distinguish our voices a bit more clearly in the conversation. So first with the story, part one. On September 20, 2013, along a windy, cold and dead-end street in a cultural precinct in one of Australia's state capitals, it took just a few hours for a band of volunteers to create an instantly funky park. They used a few milk crates, fold-out deck chairs, rolls of artificial turf, PVC piping, a plastic sandpit and some entourage in the form of people and street games. The temporary social space was initiated with volunteers for a placemaking consultancy as part of Parking Day, an annual worldwide event where artists, designers, citizens transform metered parking spots into temporary public parks. So after a day out on the artificial grass, sharing ideas with passers-by and workshop participants about what they would like if the street was close to traffic, so these ideas of seats, cafes, markets, festivals, urban greening, stage and artistic interventions, the volunteers shut down the pop-up park and went home. What is interesting about this project is that it happened 70 metres from a linear park buffered by residential towers that leads to 70 hectares of public gardens. 100 metres from this spot is also another temporary art space and pop-up park funded by the state government. So it made us ask the question, why do we need another parklet or pocket park? What was this all about? This, this notion was further provoked by talking to the placemaking consultant so despite the informal aesthetic that was created in this temporary encounter, the placemaking consultant asked, uh, said to me, it was quite hard to engage with people who lived in the immediate vicinity. She said to me she would stand there in the middle of the road and she's really friendly when she does consultations, but people just walk past, they didn't speak to her. The only people that came to this project were the bureaucrats nearby. So the fleeting park in the capital city was one of many events held around the world on Parking Day, and it may be understood as part of a wealth of practices now increasingly prominent worldwide that develop imaginative and practical counter-proposals to existing dynamics of spatial production. So while temporary urban interventions are often discussed as a group, they mask the very different aims, modern histories between them um, and within these various practices. Some have very long traditions, Others are relatively new, some are mobile, others are very site-specific, um, some seek primary to height issues, while others are more focused on the material in acting out of alternatives. Some work with property owners, others ignore or define notions of ownership altogether, and some directly contravene regulatory frameworks, while others operate perhaps quite creatively within the rules of Parking Day itself. Some directly address economic and distributive justice, while others are more playful. 
or the next day can become political. These binaries themselves conceal the significant diversity within these practices. Parking Day itself encompasses a vast and diverse set of actors and activities from anarchistic students um, to all different types of people, multinational corporations, makeshift meeting places. Um, sometimes it's undertaken once, sometimes it happens several times. Some has political support, sometimes it has pol police prohibition. Some involve into larger and more permanent events, while some just happen for the moment. So these temporary urban interventions have generated numerous labels, conferences, exhibitions, symposia, books, blogs, and a rapidly growing literature on the topic. There's even a pop-up business for dummies, so it's been corporatized so you too can do it yourself. So these grassroots creativities often framed as a response to corporate-driven urban development that intensifies the commercialization, surveillance, and policing of public urban space, and can push cities towards entrepreneurial global competitiveness. While this phenomenon is nothing new, it has risen in popularity as an object of study and often comes with many terms, from terms dealing with time, to making do, to being citizen-led, about war and power, collaboration, and the economy. At their best, interventionist practices propose alternative lifestyles, reoccupy urban space with new uses, reinvent daily life from the bottom up, in the pursuit of a more just city. They can, they're often celebrated for being low cost, quick, experimental, and playful, especially as they seem suspended in a time and space outside the dominant planning and ownership framework, but positive outcomes are not always guaranteed. These practices risk underpinning real estate-driven strategies for urban regeneration. They've also been subject to co-option for small-scale commercial purposes, where the community garden can quickly become the private balcony, or the people's market um, can become a security swipe access flow with some whiskey and a crazy cockatoo lying in wait for you. So temporary urban practices can be mobilized by local government in the marketing of a city to attract new development. And the, the success of such projects can sometimes encourage major landholders and government to avoid responsibility for making more comprehensive forms of community investment. So the availability of facilities such as community gardens possibly may be seen as a distraction for need for more essential social services such as housing, school and childcare. And at their worst, so the flip side of that binary we're presenting, informal urban practices have been mobilized in the service of exclusion and displacement. So the complex entwinement of temporary urban inventions and urban regeneration um, can be witnessed at this site you see up on the screen, which is 100 Union Street in London, where over several summers, short-term projects, which include a medicinal garden, an orchard, a bar, and a lido, have been installed each summer. And these various facilities take on the language of public building typologies, but do so on private property. And there were interim measures for the site while the property owners waited for planning permission for a future office building. And each project was constituted um, and constructed with a constellation of actors. So you find people from over 150 volunteers, an architecture foundation, a public trust, the developers themselves and landscape architects all entwined in the one project. And these temporary projects assist in exploring the site, said the developer. They highlighted the relationship with the site and the arches that you see to the rear of the site um, help them understand how it could be used in a future public project. So can a temporary project kind of inform the longer term urban development on the site? 
But the question who benefits from a project like this is complicated. The landscape architect working on this project, Heather Ring, said that it's really a place for creating a space where people come together. But others have questioned this, whether the project may in fact conceal the social relationships of power under the guise of volunteer labour, creative knowledge, and the injunction to enjoy. Just a few images of what the site's become now. So it opens in September 2017. So as Fran reflects, temporary urban inventions can also serve as a thin PR exercise and provide planning alibis for the speculative development that follows. So beyond the, the widespread uh, celebration and dismissal of such projects and practices, there's a developing call supported naturally uh, by a growing body of research literature for a, a more nuanced, productive evaluation of these diverse kinds of activities. And so what we're, we're trying to do here um, in, in this talk is to add to this critical appraisal by asking two main questions. Firstly, how can these practices uh, be separated or what distinguishes each example? And secondly, how could they be linked? How could they be linked? So, so what are the, the commonalities? Our emphasis for now um, is on the importance of asking these questions of these projects. I guess we come from a position where we feel that these questions aren't being asked enough. We're not seeking or providing definitive answers. It's a bit weaselly, but we can talk about that later. The answers we're proposing are uh, partial and provisional at best. So, attending to the particular, the, the first question focuses, as I said, on, on how to evaluate individual projects by attending to their particularities. How can we identify which aspects of these practices are, are positive and which are more problematic? This is about seeking the means to sift and assess the individual instances. In seeking to determine what might be positive or problematic, our emphasis is on, on justice, and we take a pluralist approach to justice. Our analysis has been uh, informed particularly by efforts to move beyond concerns with procedures for equitable distribution, uh, typically associated with the political philosopher John Rawls. So here we draw on the work of theorists such as Nancy Fraser and Iris Marion Young, who's, I guess, sort of extended that work in understanding that inequality and injustice result not merely uh, from poor distributive mechanisms, but also and significantly from uh, a failure to recognise different needs and values. <coughs> Following this, democratic and inclusive participation is important, not merely as a means to achieve more equitable distribution, but as a substantive goal in itself. We all recognise also that evaluations of justice must encompass questions about sustainability, responsibilities to future generations and the more than human world. So thinking in this way, across disciplines, relational theory has become increasingly influential. It recognises that identities are forged in and through relations of power, trust and obligation as well as through absence, hiatus and exclusion. Any notion of identity, that is of, of individuals, of uh, communities, um, cities, 
or particular urban interventions must thus be understood in a, in a relational way, as permeable and dynamic, shaping and shaped by experience in the world. Relational theory is developed to emphasise the way in which cities shape and are also shaped by social relationships about which we cannot be neutral. Urban places routinely structure relationships. And this idea of place includes the planning, property and other laws through which its production and inhabitation is regulated. So given this structure, this structuring is, is going on, there is a need to focus on the kinds of relationships we want to foster. We also need to think about how different physical and regulatory structures will best contribute to those. And that's where a critical analysis of these kinds of urban interventions becomes relevant. Our analysis emphasises not only long-term or formal relationships, but also the fleeting ones, the, these glances that occur between you know, passers-by and, and the occupants of an intervention, for instance. It's been recognised for a long time that encounters, our fleeting interactions, are often important to questions of justice in cities. For temporary urban interventions, this points to the need to examine the more transient relationships involved. Do these projects, in the moment, encourage hybridity and experimentation? Do they create spaces for banal transgressions, convivial encounters, dialogue across difference, perhaps? We've approached the question of, of particularity in a couple of ways. First, by asking, what are the relationships by which particular temporary urban interventions are constituted? Who is involved in their conception, construction and operation? This is an image of uh, uh, a, a pop-up um, for Restaurant Day, which is, uh, I think, it started in Helsinki. started in Helsinki... It's, it's a day, it's a bit like parking day, it's now practised across the world, where people might open up their home or they occupy parks and set up you know, their own restaurant for a day to allow other people to come and share food. Temporary inter urban interventions are sometimes described as a way to democratise the production of the built environment, enabling those whose voices have been overlooked to play a role in shaping their cities. Yet the practice of temporary, urban in, of temporary urbanism is often less open than it might at first seem. To act in the urban environment, particularly in ways that challenge existing conditions, often requires a level of political and economic security and stability that actually precludes the engagement of many people. Recent immigrants, particularly those with uncertain residence status, are much less likely to get involved. Participants from minority groups may also suffer greater penalties if they do participate. To play with the status quo and get away with it is a privilege. The degree to which temporary urban practices arise out of local communities is also significant, given the tendency to valorise the local in discussion of such practices. This is exemplified by the artist and critic Martha Rosler's dismissal of urban interventionist practices that do not recognise the long-term intense commitment required for, as she puts it, community immersion. 
particularly in the context of uh, interventions led by visiting artists, and, and Rosler was uh, particularly um, talking about Detroit um, in, in the articles that she wrote. Um, Rosler laments the way in which such projects may render invisible the longer-term work of existing local communities. Yet Doreen Massey's caution against the romanticising of the local is also, also pertinent, it's also relevant. A high public profile, a commercial model, a relationship of distance rather than prop propinquity, none of these, of these features necessarily precludes progress towards justice. Evaluation of temporary urban interventions and of alternative urbanism more broadly requires a thoughtful and continued questioning of the relationships that produce such practices and of the broader relationships of which they form part. Take little free libraries. One minor act in 2009, at least according to one foundational story, one minor act in 2009, the creation of a book exchange the size of a mailbox as a, as a tribute to a school teacher, has grown into a movement with 32,000 little book libraries now located worldwide. Little libraries are generally thought of pretty benevolently. Charming, usually hand-built, constructions at the interface of the domestic realm and the public. They tend to be associated with positive community interactions. The fleeting browse through unwanted books experienced as an act of, of neighbourly generosity or even sometimes directly drawing people together in a shared discussion of the, of the little library's contents. You know, Fifty Shades of Grey, did you like that book or not? Or should that be in the little library? I don't know. Individually, some little libraries contribute to stronger local relationships among neighbours, building literacy through providing reading material and encouraging cultures of sharing within the community, except for Fifty Shades of Grey. However, we can ask whether their collective presence could also have less desirable consequences. I mean, it's really pushing the point, perhaps, but go with it for a moment. But some commentators, such as uh, Shannon Mattern in, in Places Online, have suggested that little libraries can have the effect of reducing the stock available to second-hand bookstores and charity shops, um, or, or to the person experiencing homelessness who you know, takes books to, to sell or devaluing and perhaps providing support for the downsizing of institutional libraries. Certainly, though, little free libraries um, do tend to rely on the acceptance of unauthorised intervention into the space of the street. In some cases, they have presented challenges to existing planning regulations around temporary structures. Pretty minor and benign, sure, but conflict has still arisen. More on that later. How that plays out, whose challenge to such regulation is, is acceptable, who has the ability to even make such a challenge is always contextual and contingent. So you know, I show this slide as, a, as quite a, you know, a stark contrast to, to make that point. You know, compare the treatment of the Little Free Library as this intervention into public space um, with, with other unauthorised constructions, such as you know, it's become very timely since you know, today, um, the, the camp, the safe, the safe space, that's been constructed in Martin Place, right here in Sydney. The reactions to this intervention, the reaction to this intervention has been of a very different register. 
You know, so this is another uh, restaurant day you know, intervention into public space. You know? what, what's the difference here? Questions of differing privilege and agency are involved. Who becomes involved? The second part of our approach to analysing the particular is to suggest an examination of the relationships that these practices themselves enact. So we move from, you know, who's kind of focused on who's doing it to, to who does it kind of bring in to the intervention. Who is involved in the consumption of the temporary practice? How, how do they interact? Which relationships are performed into or out of, of being? Questions of privilege and accessibility are important also in the way in which urban interventions are used. Even if their creation might tend to be dominated by the relatively privileged, temporary urban interventions may still provide more equitable distribution of and access to resources, or perhaps un otherwise unavailable opportunities for play, encounter with strangers and dialogue across difference. A playful relationship between private companies and the public was the key to an action to create debate on the many potholes in the road of Panama City. In order to draw attention to poor road infrastructure, Telemetro Reporter, a daily current affairs TV show, in collaboration with the advertising agency P4 Ogilvy and Mather, created El Hueco Twittero, the tweeting pothole. When a vehicle drives over a puck-like device planted in a pothole, a witty Twitter message is directed via um, RF transmitters at Panama's Ministry of Public Works. <laughs> uh, messages such as, fix me, I'm endangering lives, and hit me baby one more time. <laughs> okay, no, just avoid me. There are some longer tweets too. Um, at MOP de Panama, I'm tired of being blamed every time a car crash happens when drivers try to keep away from me. Repair the streets. Hashtag decent roads. This um, entertaining way to complain about poor urban infrastructure mimics the, uh, the in real life tactic, I guess, of overloading a bureaucracy with complaints and petitions in the hope that it responds to the demands. The tweeting potholes which are moved randomly throughout the city uh, every few days in order to broaden their impact, draw together diverse actors. The temporary intervention was conceived by commercial media companies um, who have constructed and operated the event in tandem with, with the drivers who unknowingly um, trigger Twitter. The intervention relies upon the amplification of the event through traditional and social media channels, which is then consumed by the public along with government Twitter account, Twitter account operators. There are a few more, there are those tweets. While El Hueco Twittero draws significant media chatter about the conditions of, of roads, there is minimal direct and physical interaction between local government or citizens and the initial protagonists. Within this particular example, we could conclude that relationships are very asymmetric and short-lived. Yet we should all perhaps also examine whether these fleeting interactions open up possibilities for more lasting shifts in the ways in which citizens, corporations and the city are or are not connected. More materially, 
an operation constructed by media and advertising professionals could also have ramifications for road users who might otherwise have been unable to influence relevant government departments. While it's a fleeting, humorous, maybe flippant um, intervention, El Hueco Twittero also bears the possibility for challenging or entrenching the city's existing spatial relationships. Which roads were chosen? Where? Who would benefit most from their improvement? Okay, so as Lee said, we have two broad concerns that we're looking at. The second question, uh, attending to the collective, in evaluating the impact of temporary urban interventions in the pursuit of just cities, our second question is, how can temporary urban interventions be linked? What is their collective impact, their status as a movement, their role in achieving more just and sustainable cities? This is the more temporally and spatially expansive question, focusing on the myriad relationships that these practices reveal, create, challenge or entrench. Assessing the impact of temporary urban practices, and particularly whether they do indeed further a more just urban politics, cannot be a matter of simply evaluating individual projects. Mimi Zeiger and Kurt Iverson have each argued that evaluation must consider whether a bigger picture is emerging and what is its nature. Iverson emphasises political subjectivisation. This is important, he argues, because there's no guarantee that small-scale experiments will produce wider change. What is crucial, Iverson says, is that practitioners make themselves parties to a disagreement over the forms of authority that produce urban space. This is an image from Critical Mass, the monthly event in which cyclists ride together, collectively and repeatedly, to push people to rethink the priority given to cars on city streets. In his emphasis on political subjectivisation, Iverson echoes David Harvey's claim that small activities, even when aggregated, are not enough to achieve more just cities. Others critique such Marxist reasoning. Roberto Unger, for example, rejects the purported need to choose between what he calls reformist tinkering and all-out revolution. Unger argues that even partial substitution of beliefs and institutions could, in fact, affect significant changes in social ordering and hierarchies. So the street art that we see here might be dismissed as fun and frivolous. Alternatively, it might be understood as an effort to recalibrate relationships in car-dominated North America, comparable to critical mass, as an effort to question and perhaps trigger a rethinking of who has priority in the street. Reconciling that debate again, a little weaselly, is beyond the scope of our discussion. We raise it, though, because we see value in both claims and we wish to highlight the importance of returning to the question rather than fixing definitive measures. We see the distinction between the individual and the collective as fuzzy, the line between large and small-scale change as permeable, the separation between the local, the regional and even the global as artificial. For us, the key question in considering both how to separate temporary practices and how to group them centres on relationships over time. So we agree that there is much to be said for reformist tinkering and recognise the limitations of focusing on large-scale legal and institutional reform. 
We agree also that analysis of connections and recognition of the various parties involved in the process of making cities is crucial. So we pose two questions because we see the two issues as linked. For several years, parents at our local primary school have been asking the government to improve safety at a dangerous intersection near the school on Cleveland Street in Surrey Hills. With no response, the parents started drawing circles onto the footpath in chalk to indicate a safe waiting place. Later, those chalk circles were replaced by more permanent uh, stickers. There's much to celebrate in this intervention. A quick and cheap solution, stronger relationships between the parents involved, uh, a sense of achievement among the local community. However, one might ask whether this kind of action could also have less desirable consequences. Might it reduce demands on the state to provide a safe environment? While the relatively privileged parents in our inner city community might be able to make do, others might struggle. The parent who led this DOTS project is an urban designer, and as her children move from primary school to high school, it's unclear who will maintain the DOTS in the future. Evaluation of impacts must, as Doreen Massey argues, recognise the importance of relationships between spaces. As cities around the world have endeavoured to increase their competitiveness by attracting and raising the profile of creative practitioners following Richard Florida's advice, temporary urban inventions uh, have frequently been employed as part of those efforts. As such, they have been critiqued for triggering processes of gentrification and displacement by increasing property values, feeding into exclusionary processes of place marketing and competition between urban areas and further marginalising those people and places with less cultural capital. <coughs> in this context, ostensibly positive local practices might have other negative uh, impacts when considered on a wider scale. Here we see an example of a, a pop-up, a mobile urban lab funded by BMW that engaged many young design professionals in thinking about the future of various cities around the world. We can see also a, a poster critiquing uh, the mobile lab, uh, for its lack of attention to justice in the city, uh, this particular one in Berlin. Note the translation at the bottom. Affordable housing, we talked about it. Perhaps the most common trope invoked in discussions of temporary urbanism, the right to the city, suggests two ways to approach the question of collective impact. Proposed by the Ferv in 1968, the right to the city has since been interpreted as both a claim for inclusion and a call for revolution. If temporary urban interventions do indeed contribute to just greater justice and sustainability in cities, we might ask whether they do so by improving existing frameworks for the production of urban space, so including more people in, in what we already do, or by more radical critique of those frameworks, finding a, a different way to do things. Again, as with the distinction between reformist tinkering and revolutionary reform, the line between these two approaches is far from clear. An important question is thus whether, and to what degree, temporary urban interventions challenge existing power structures. More critically, why do they do so? Seeking permission from the owner, council, state government or some other authority might be useful in situations where illegality or criminality could distract from the real questions at issue. So here for Keep Australia Colourful Day, 
an event that set out to celebrate the often controversial practice of street art. The organisers uh, were very careful to ensure that the murals painted were legal. This was seen as important uh, to build the alliances necessary for more democratic transformation of urban spaces in the longer term. However, working within established frameworks might also have the effect of reinforcing them, particularly through activities where existing power relationships are performed, so the process of asking permission, uh, seeking approvals. More cynically, less subversive interventions that, that don't challenge legal frameworks might also provide greater opportunities for co-option by commercial interests. So Coca-Cola's rollout happiness truck here, uh, for example, provided pop-up parks with a clear marketing focus. Rather than focusing on whether or to what degree temporary interventions challenge existing legal structures, a focus on the particular relationships involved allows for more nuanced examination of the issues. Legal frameworks, and particularly legal frameworks relating to the use of land, have in many instances changed, and arguably been improved, as a result of illegal behaviour. In the case of Little Free Libraries, some of the projects have uh, come into conflict with planning regulations. Uh, in Shreveport, Louisiana, the placement of books as acts of civil disobedience uh, encouraged reform in a review of the uh, local planning code. The direct challenge to property frameworks through squatting was an important catalyst in the campaign to save Govan Hill Baths in Glasgow, Scotland. After serving the local community since 1917, the bathhouse in Govan Hill was closed by Glasgow City Council in 2001. A public campaign to reopen the pools developed almost immediately, including activists occupying the building for 140 days until the council forced them out. This was enough, though, to convince the council to retain the bars and to engage the community in developing plans for their future use. So while council set about raising funds to reopen the bars, an iterative design process took place in which the community coordinated several temporary projects, such as what you can see here. Um, so art installations, a skate park, theatre performances, music gigs and a range of other pop-ups um, through which the community temporarily tested various alternatives for the space. After years of campaigning, the building was reopened as a community hub in 2012 and is now being revitalised in three stages, so including recommissioning the swimming pools. So, on the pages of a glossy magazine, a blog or Instagram, various temporary urban interventions can easily be conflated. What we have addressed is the need to look more closely beyond their form at the relations that constitute and are constituted by these practices. More specifically, we've sought to reckon with both the particular and the collective opportunities and dilemmas that these practices invoke as interventions oriented towards questions of justice in the city. Our focus has been identifying the questions necessary for critical consideration of temporary urban interventions. So, two questions. First, how can these practices be assessed individually how can their particularities be comprehended and evaluated? And second, how can these practices be assessed collectively? How can we identify their broader collective contributions to developing more just and sustainable cities? For us, the crucial issue in addressing both of these questions centres on relationships, through which we consider the way in which these practices might contribute to efforts to increase justice. As we move beyond the brief example sketched here tonight, 
A thicker examination of various interventions might in turn reveal ways in which our framework could be refined. Reflecting now on our preliminary analysis, the extent to which temporary urban interventions and practices should be insurrectionary or subversive remains open. Smaller scale approaches, Unger's reformist tinkering, may harbour more potential to embed temporary urban interventions into broader struggles for justice in the city. More cynically, however, they might also provide greater opportunities for commercial co-option. In seeking to examine temporary urban interventions and their impacts, it's important to recognise the limitations of focusing on legal and institutional reform. Progress toward justice in the city can be evolutionary rather than revolutionary. Change can become evident long after the temporary project has ceased, as transitions occur through the accumulation of many interactions at different scales. Change can stem from an experimental outlier, and it can also fail to result from an action that in other instances has produced positive outcomes. So why are we discussing this here? How is our analysis relevant to this festival and to the future of Sydney? Temporary urban interventions are increasingly being adopted in cities worldwide. It's no different here. I'm sure that many of you have experienced or even produced these kinds of pop-up projects. On a larger scale, the Maya Foundation recently um, committed a significant amount of money to encourage local councils to embed temporary approaches uh, as within their planning practices. So if we want pop-ups to deliver positive outcomes, ongoing attention to the relationships that produce and are produced by these kind of projects is crucial. Okay, what a wonderful paper in three parts. I'd like to invite all the speakers over to the panel chairs and I'd like to now introduce and ask Professor Anne Forsyth to uh, give us some uh, a short commentary and then chair a uh, discussion with our panellists. Uh, I might hand straight over to you probably for about 20 minutes and then we might throw over to some questions from the audience. Yes, and so um, it's good to be here tonight. I'm actually not going to do that much comment and have more conversation, but I do have the benefit of having read the paper that this is based on that came, that's actually evolved over a number of years, first sort of presented in uh, 2013 and sort of uh, gone through many evolutions until it was published this year. And it's a really wide-ranging paper that, as you can tell, it, and they only discovered a few of the examples in the in the presentation tonight. And it, it, it goes through a wide range of these kind of temporary urban um, interventions. It very briefly mentions uh, some uses that are quite commonly um, uh, focused on in the literature, things like community gardens, outdoor markets, and vending. Um, and it has quite a focus, however, on these more um, uh, professionally-led activities like parking day, uh, protest activities like the Occupy movement and some squatting, uh, interim uses on construction sites, and um, as well activities that communicate in a political way but aren't really inhabited, that they don't actually bring people together. Things like uh, graffiti or the tweeting potholes, which are one of my favourite examples. 
Um, and they promise in the paper and in the presentation to do two uh, quite complicated things. One of which is to create a kind of typology or classification, a way of distinguishing these um, interventions from each other. And the other is to provide some sort of definitive evaluation in terms of justice. And in fact, they never get there. They got much further in the presentation tonight. But obviously, it's a difficult thing. Why didn't you, why couldn't you quite get to the typology and the evaluation? Um, yeah, so the idea of, of developing, of typing these projects um, fell away as we started to look at more and more of them um, and found that in terms of trying to evaluate projects, that type wasn't really going to help. I guess we probably, I think we had started with uh, an intuition that if we did that, we would find certain kinds of projects that would be more or less um, positive. Right. And, and of course, we had a, you know, we had, I think we're fairly upfront, we have a normative stance on that. There, there are certain a position that we take about what, how you would decide what would be positive and, and not around this idea of um, uh, looking at the relationships that are constituted um, in and out of the, the project. But looking at type didn't really tell you much about that. So to talk about whether it's short-term or long-term or whether it's professionally-led or not or, um, you know, focused around food or not or, you know, commercial transaction or non-commercial, uh, we, we could keep going finer and finer with the grain of, of that analysis and it wasn't doing anything for um, taking a stand on, on the positive qualities of those projects. Because if you start to investigate the form of it, and in my research I've gone off and I haven't tried to do a taxonomy, but if you start to evaluate projects, for example, I was talking to someone about the ubiquitous pallet crate, the timber pallet crate that's used. And on one project in Melbourne, the project manager, so local government, wanted to use a pallet crate because it looked informal. People wouldn't miss it, it was taken away. So they wanted this kind of temporary material. But in another project in Christchurch, they wanted a pallet crate because it could be recyclable. So completely different issues with the same kind of form of material. So it wasn't helpful in the end. Yeah. And, and we, the very first iteration of the paper, I think we took Parking Day as our punching bag. We, because Parking Day, by, at that point, you know, the city of Adelaide was running um, this highly orchestrated and regulated Parking Day where you had to register months in advance and get a permit for your parking spot. And, I don't know, put traffic cones around it to make sure no one was hurt and multinational architecture practices, one best parking day lot. And we were thinking, you know, this is an example of, you know, this thing's gone horribly kind of wrong. But then, you know, Amelia can speak much more about parking day. There's a richness to what goes on with parking day and all sorts of stories that would, would contrast with, with that. And so, it's, yeah, it just... The eternal academic response—it's a bit more complicated. But also, I think in the investigation, also when you, when we hope to look at a taxonomy but chose it upon relationships, it becomes really important to look at the transformation in actors involved. Yeah. And that became a lot more important to tell the story. So, um, coming from the architecture discipline, often you're looking at type and building, etc. But you often forget to look at people and what happens to people because you, as an architect, every day practice thinking about how cities are constructed and made but actually someone who's done Parking Day for the first time has never thought about these things 
in such a way before and parking data becomes a methodology for them to get more engaged or involved or not. And so that's why relationships became more prevalent, I think, in these types of practices. Yeah, so in terms of the taxonomy, pretty much any categorisation that we came up with, we almost instantly came up with an example that didn't fit. We couldn't find any way of, of separating projects that work consistently. Well, but there is one uh, way that you, you sort of, one filter that you used in that you focused a fair bit on professionally led activities, even if that might be uh, sort of artists, architects, or even sort of more professionalised activists, um, versus like the community survival type of informal or uh, uh, temporary activities like street vending and so on. Um, and that seems to have implications for justice. So how did you come to that and w do you see implications? I think part of that is that Lee and Timothy as the architects can probably say more though it's a disciplinary bias. I think it's partly also being based in Australia. So the Martin Place example that Lee showed has very quickly been, uh, the state has come down very heavily on that. It's quite a different context to the US where there is a, a much larger informal economy where these kinds of practices uh, have more space to, to flourish than they do here. Yeah, and I think there's a point at which the project began was a, a high point for professionally led practices in this kind of area. The, the, the US pavilion for the Venice Biennale uh, 2008. 2008 or later. Anyway, whichever year that was, um, was focused almost entirely on, on these kinds of practices. And I guess for me also, um, I, I've been looking at wealthy economies and privileged economies, and uh, it was very problematic to inflate uh, this with like informal urbanism or another topic, so very particular to uh, what I was looking at myself. Yeah. But there was, I guess, yeah, particularly. For Timothy, and certainly for me, there was a, a question about, um, yeah, this nagging kind of worry in terms of framing these as professional practices, say, for architects. Um, was there kind of an inherent problem with that? Was there? I think no. You know, again, it, the, the, that played out as, well, no, not always. It doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, uh, you know, that the community doesn't have agency um, or a project is going to end up with a particular outcome because it may have started with professionals. Well, and uh, to sort of take that a little further, when I've been looking, when I was reading the paper and looking at this, there this seemed to be another way you could split up the projects. And one is, which is that some of them are around bringing people together in a physical space, things like um, parking day or some of the squatting or the Occupy. But others are really about communication, and I'm thinking graffiti or the tweeting pothole. They're actually not bringing people together in physical space at all. They're kind of using social media or a sort of something that you look at visually. And that seems to have some kind of implications for the discussion of justice, whether you're bringing people together physically or communicating. So... Well, I, I, well, sorry to go back to this. We could split this again in a way when you talk about bringing people together. Often, is it just about communicating an idea? So I don't think you can split it that way. I think still they're doing the same thing in a different way. So I feel like it's a circular break there. And similarly, with projects that might seem just communicative, they might bring people together in other spaces. So it might not be happening all at the same time, but 
a, an effective piece of graffiti or some other um, visual intervention might get people talking in other places. I actually liked the tweeting potholes. They're my favourite example. It's, it's a good one, yeah. Um, and, you know, an interesting one in the way that it draws in you know, actors who uh, are kind of unwittingly part of that project, so the drivers. And it's led by, a, like, an ad agency right. and a... And mad a men doing proper projects. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's quite interesting, the temporality of it all, because we call it temporary, so it has a limited time. But in actual fact, we need to look at these projects over a longer period of time. So I think this lens is quite important that's often neglected. So, I mean, if we're looking for more definition or more lenses to look at beyond relationships, I think time uh, is important. I think also actors, so looking at who's involved. And also it's important to look at actors over time and projects that I've looked at where someone's done a community garden who's just a neighbour becomes the vice mayor of a town. So you can see transformation in actors so it's not necessarily the project itself but the transformation in the person that becomes important to follow rather than the different project as it moves in different domains. Well and actually that brings me to um, another thing that struck me as I actually read this paper but the whole literature and that the focus on justice also brings up in that there's in this um, debate there is a, a focus on issues of um, political statement or um, economic benefit, economic distribution. But I, I suppose I've always wondered about the more emotional or um, sensory kind of parts of these um, interventions? What about things like pleasure or mental restoration? Does it always have to be about the political and the economic? Um, you know, and, where does, and what are the implications of that for justice? Yeah, that, that took me a long time to come to the conclusion. Just having fun is okay. I'm an overthinker, as you can probably see by this paper. So it actually took me a long time to go, yeah, just actually having fun and connecting people on an everyday level is just as important, like, evaluation marker in a way. And I've been looking at Christchurch in particular and just in terms of re-engaging with the city, uh, re-engaging with friends, trying, finding new places to have a, a bar or a place to hang out together is a very important thing to create as well, as much as these political statements. And in themselves, social activists then can become political. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think it's, it's a gap in the discussion, or certainly the kind of literature that, that we were pointing to. Um, it's, it's sometimes the, the, the pleasures of these activities are either sort of implicit, so they're, they're not the thing that's focused on, say, in professionally-led um, projects. They're often it's something that's piggybacked on, so it's kind of material to use. You can get people interested because they do have fun. Or sometimes it can be, um, yeah, kind of Trojan horse. Um, enjoyable activities that allow someone to um, uh, develop a project that, that they feel is making a certain change in the way we, we use spaces or is making yeah, a political statement. Uh, and I think it's probably a symptom, it's maybe symptomatic of who's speaking about these projects um, and to what purposes. Yeah, I think sometimes it's either or, too, because there's this thing that it's so much more valuable if it's a place where you can have political protest physically, whereas political protest can happen in lots of places, in like social media and um, in private uh, locations, at the workplace, in the home, right? It's like this, it's not just a physical public space where you have political action. And so, but political action always trumps uh, pleasure or sociability or 
whatever as a sort of um, idea behind or a sort of use of these spaces. Frustration of mine. I, I feel like political discussion is so, has so many more venues than, than just that. But the pleasure is crucial. So when I've been interviewing people, uh, people often tell me how surprised they are by how much work is involved in these things. So they're, you know, very short, using things like pallets and astroturf that look like it should all be rolled out in, in a very short time. And people often say to me, I've, I've been doing uh, a lot of interviews over the last few years about how much work is involved, uh, but how important the pleasure is in doing that work. That they, they're surprised by how hard it is and they're also surprised by how fun it is. Um, I interviewed an architect in San Francisco who's been involved in Parking Day um, pretty much every year since 2006 when it starts. He has his whole practice, spent about two weeks building these parks for, for Parking Day. So a huge amount of resources um, going into temporary frivolous, uh, perhaps, interventions. Um, and he described it as the equivalent of buying organic. So he said it's, it's a bit more expensive, but it sustains you. It's what gets you through the, the rest of the year. Well, um, I think that's about it for our... That sounds like a great place to hand over to some questions. So I have... I will take a couple of... Look, let's just kick straight off here with a question right here. Yeah, I just think that it's, um, it's so terribly topical and it's happening at the moment in the city that I think it's worth spending a little bit of time, a little bit more time on what's happening in Martin Place because I think uh, homelessness is not a project... <laughs> But there's a beautiful project that can come out of it. And, and what's happened in Martin Place at one level is certainly viewed as a protest, but it's also very much uh, a response to obviously a really basic need um, to um, you know, be sheltered and sheltered in a safe sort of context. So it may well be viewed as an incursion as much as an intervention. Um, the experience of the Martin Place community is clearly one of cohesion and support amongst each other, but also the experience of viewing what was happening at Martin Place was quite pleasurable. So I don't know how other people feel about Martin Place, but sometimes it's just you know a place where a tumbleweed might blow through and it's pretty chilly and, and fairly bland. And so seeing that community there and the, and the warmth that there was that was happening amongst um, those people there it was really something quite charming. But it's also a really uh, important issue for our city at the moment in terms of um, dealing with homelessness. And I think it's a really important thing to talk, up, talk about more in the context of justice and pop-up. Yeah, I, I think, yes, and, and the point you made about the, the cohesion that's developed in that, that community, I think speaks to, you know, I guess what we've been arguing about, the importance, you know, if you want to evaluate these projects, these incursions, interventions, to be looking at those relationships that, that have been constituted in them. And so, if you, you know, if you were to, if you were to, if people to, were to, the critics of Martin Place were maybe to be presented with that kind of evaluation of what is going on there, that would place quite a different value on that, the, the safe space, on the, the construction that's been made there, than the one is, than the value that is tending to be placed on it as a price or as a kind of, I don't know, danger to public health that, that needs to be removed. And if we place, you know, like, I know it was a bit extreme, but place the little free library as a kind of, one kind of incursion into public space alongside the Martin Place example and do that analysis and say, well, what, you know, what really is Martin Place, that, that safe space has been constructed doing that is so harmful and negative? 
in relation to that. I think, yeah, the evaluation would be quite different. We wouldn't be seeking to simply take the actions that the state government's taking. Okay, we have another question down the front here. Hi, thanks. So, I was sort of interested that you found people who complained about little free libraries, which is about the nicest and most harmless thing that you can imagine, because it would detract from the need for public support of public libraries. So I'm not supposed to actually do anything for myself, but rather supplicate myself to a government providing me books. And in contrast, you sort of look at the Twittering pothole where it would send out tweets. I looked it up. It has 60 followers. It's not really a very big deal. But, and, and they do, erased all of their previous tweets, which well, that's fine. Um, where the cost of sending out those tweets is more expensive than the cost of actually filling the pothole. So the ad agency was doing this as a stunt rather than actually trying to solve a problem. And so there's really a contrast here in my mind about people who are trying to do things for themselves in like the Little Free Library versus those who are trying to get other people to do things for them, like the tweeting pothole and some of these other things. And I think that's an important distinction um, and it's basically a difference between an individualistic view of the world versus a, a com communistic or communal view, view of the world in a, in a sense. I guess one of the critiques that these projects get is where they're located. So they're in inner city gentrifying areas. And that's the places where people can do things for themselves, not necessarily the areas that need the things for themselves. So I guess when we're thinking about justice, it's how do you take these benefits out to other um, less resourced communities? Lee, did you have something to add to that? Yeah, and I guess you know, the, the point about the Little Free Library, as I said, that, that critique of the Little Free Library is about you know, potentially being the thin end of the wedge in terms of losing our public library system. Yes, it's kind of, it's an extreme version of, of that argument. But there's, there's something there. I mean, you know, there's, there's a spectrum there in terms of, yeah, what, what, we social, what kind of uh, resources and services and so on we socialise and what we, we see as, you know, private private goods that we you know we, we deal with ourselves. Um, and I guess these all of these projects, yeah, you, you start to interrogate them and look at where are they falling there and what and for whom are they arguing for these resources to be put in the service of. Um, the little free libraries might be yeah, kind of the extreme version of that, but I I think that criticism or critique can, can hold for other for other projects. I don't think it's um, well, David, I get your point on little free libraries, but the potholes really are a collective um, kind of activity. They could, have, they could have equally shamed the government by filling the potholes themselves and saying, look, we fill the potholes ourselves for $50 of animated labor or whatever it would have been. I mean, it's really not expensive to just attach on a pothole. And gotten the publicity for that rather than this Okay, we've, we've got another question up right up the back here. I just want to follow on from the great point down the front about um, 
who's behind this and the point you raised about who's behind this and who's involved in these activations because I think a lot of the conversation is and a lot of the people that have the ability to do this are very formalised community organisations at the moment or at the worst corporates like Coca-Cola. Um, it's, it's really just all I'm trying to contribute here is the emphasis on the individual here and the community group that might not be organised but that might have a valid point and having a framework where they can be listened to and where they can be supported if it's a good idea and that the idea could be the merit and the need could be the merit and yeah, just taking that as a basis I think is a really nice thing that came out of the talk from, for me. Yeah, a lot of these projects don't come... Well, I mean, I've been focused primarily on Parking Day, but a lot of the parks that people build aren't out of organised community groups, and they're often groups of people that come together just to do Parking Day. That's their first collective endeavour. And I've been surprised how many times they're coming together in that, then they become a community group. So that it's actually quite an important process that of achieving something in doing it in public, having other people recognise them and give them positive affirmation for what they've done, that then empowers them to do more longer-lasting things. And, and for me, I, my, particular, I particularly look at uh, temporary projects within uh, urban development frameworks, so when developers and local government deliver this. So often what's interesting with these projects is that you know, property developers, um, good and bad, often try and cash in the subcultural capital for larger capital or in the or in the tweeting pothole, it's about the amplification of their communication brand in a way. So it's really important um, as a design professional when you step into these kind of worlds is to think about what parallel relationships are behind it. Is it really about your career and, and getting more work? Or, or should you be working on something else altogether that's your own project rather than for someone else? So it's just these questions to ask as you go, you get approached and should work on these projects. Excellent. Okay, we have a, one question over here. Is Alex in the room? I've got a card here with just the word Alex on it. I'm going to come back up there in a second. Uh, yes, uh, my question uh, is, uh, would you say that, uh, you know, the projects you looked at, um, that there was, you know, a lot of them um, had, they had, you know, um, political uh, aims, you know, say, for example, the one in, in Adelaide, I guess was, um, you know, also addressing the kind of, um, that, you know, that, that the car use in the city and so, uh, and so on and, you know, pedestrianizing the city and uh, parking spaces and so on, for example. And, um, you know, it, my impression was that a lot of the projects, okay, like, for example, the, the, the one with the potholes was trying to get uh, the government to fill the potholes. So I, I would be uh, really curious to hear if, if you followed, um, some of those projects, um, to see whether they achieved some of their aims. Yeah, I think that's the whole problem with uh, discourse around temporary projects is that the project happens, a lot of claims are made about these projects, but no one will go back and evaluate it at all. So I, f I find that within my own discipline that there's a lot of claims by the designers um, and all the people that instigate these projects and often change won't occur from this, but all change can be embedded within the people that go off onto, onto different projects. So I think we need to look at when we measure the success of a project, there are different things that we need to look at. We need to look at its connection vertically, like to other scales in the city. Does something at Martin Place perhaps uh, affect policy or regulation or state government actors? Do we look horizontally? How does it affect other domains or other places? How also it affects um, over time, how this project could develop a project over time, or as I said before, the actors as well, what happens in the transformation of these people. So we need different lenses 
to define it rather than just looking at it in a short term, but look at the long term as yeah. well. Yeah. And, and what we found, I think one of the reasons that the, the paper changed over time was as we kind of dipped back into it, we, we'd be looking at for some of the projects what what material, what you know, kind of outcomes had emerged from projects that we were interested in, you know, a couple of years ago, and we find new outcomes or you know, problems or success stories, and, and that would change our view, our interpretation of that project. And I think it points to yeah a need to, to look longitudinally, to look to do a, a longer-term study of some of these, but also for, for those who might be doing the researching, some methodological issues that come up around how to track impact of some of these kinds of projects, where you're not looking at... Um, uh, a built outcome, say in architecture, where you do post-occupancy evaluations and you can talk to successive building owners and occupants and so on. The temporary project that, like Amelia talked about, the parking days that, that pop up and can be quite transformative for the individuals who are involved, but then they go on to do quite different activities in maybe different parts of the city or another city. How do we, how do you even track that impact um, as, a, as a researcher to, to try and answer some of these questions about the longer-term um, role of these kinds of projects. And that became clear to me when I looked at 100 Union Street, so the temporary Lido and bar and etc. I just I hadn't looked at that project for a year, and I went back and found the renders of the new project that will come in September. So I, I, it's a bit flippant in a way because I haven't checked the claims properly of, of that project, but there's obviously now a closed rooftop bar with views of the Shard in London. So the claims about learning through occupying space over time to understand what could happen with the architecture doesn't seem to fall out. So that's why longitudinal perspective is important as well. It's also often difficult because uh, these projects are one of many other things asking for the same thing. So in my interviews, one of my case studies was Montreal. And um, Montreal in recent years has got a whole lot more bike lanes and pop-up parks and all of the cool stuff that these people are asking for, and in some of my interviews, people would say it's all because of parking day. Parking days are cheap so much, and other people would say it's nothing to do with parking day, it's because of this or that. So really difficult to, um, to yeah, as they said, the methodology of working out what achieves what is very difficult. Excellent, and we might take the last question for the night from Alex up here, midway up here, running up. <laughs> um, yeah, I had a question which may or may not be or have an obvious answer, but I was wondering if you think, judging from the work you've been doing on these temporary pop-ups, if the question of um, occupation versus appropriation, if making a distinction between those terms is like useful or helpful or if they're more interchangeable than that or how you see those verbs? Excellent. Should we go in turn to finish up? That means yes, every, I'm everybody needs to answer. to give it one last statement. So anyone can answer the question, then I have a final question. Yeah, because I mean, when I, I'm, I'm just processing what you said, the occupation versus appropriation, and then I could, um, I'm not going to give any definitive answers again tonight. <laughs> um, I guess I'm interested in what transformations can be made in a way, and for me, I'm looking at systems transitions in, in my work, like how do we uh, 
transition in society to something else, and these transitions happen through niche and small temporary projects, but happen over transformations over 25 or 50 year periods. So the clues that we're finding in the last 10 or 20 years in these niche projects, whether it's occupation or appropriation, somehow are building up through interactions to make something else completely different. So um, it doesn't answer that question in a way. So I, but I'm looking for that transformation or change, so that's appropriation, I guess. That's also occupation, you know, staking claim on a space as much as it is in transforming or changing a space or making a space space your own. Well, they might mean appropriation in the in the form of like appropriating the temporary, like sort of politically powerful <coughs> people appropriating the temporary for their own ends. That's another appropriation. Yeah, I'm not quite sure I understand the distinction you're making between occupation and appropriation. <laughs> But I, I guess you mean occupation as in like going into someone else's space and appropriation as in making it yourself? Or do you mean about occupation being short term and appropriation longer term? Or? Yeah, okay. Well, I think for me, just occupation is about ownership. Like occupying a space and appropriation is about the transformation of the space, but I think both are important in a way. I haven't thought about that in terms of these projects. So, so ownership is very much what I have been yeah. thinking about, and and in that context, I find it difficult to separate them. But I think in terms of so um, when I interview people about their experience in Parking Day, one of the really significant impacts. So in terms of the sort of policy or physical impacts, it's really difficult to work out. But one of the impacts that is I think pretty clear is a sense of ownership um, and that comes from occupying the space but also from appropriating it. So actually physically being on the street, people say that they use words like profound and transformative, really um, changing the way they see the city and change their, you know, their understanding of what they could potentially do in the city. Um, but then by actually doing something, actually creating the space and making it the way that they wanted it, actually you know, materially... Um, putting their vision into practice is really um, even more significant and even more empowering and leading people to go on and do other things afterwards. But I don't know that that really answers the question. Well, actually, I wanted to finish with uh, just your reflection on actually doing this work and sort of one last sort of takeaway point you'd like to give, either something that really surprised you or something that you do differently now having done this work. Well, okay. I can so, see someone desperate to ask a question up there. I don't know if we want to okay, we'll take this one last question. I was trying to ignore you there, but you're very persistent. Just, we'll get this on mic. Um, thanks for a wonderful presentation. Um, I, I suppose I have many questions, but one that sort of just triggered me to the end there and what's been reoccurring through the presentation is this idea of car parking day, which I truly believe was the one of the trigger points for tactical urbanism being sort of recognised as a global placemaking trend. Uh, but when you really take it down to its its genesis, it was someone saying, we're here in San Francisco, there's no green space, there's plenty of car parking, I'm going to put a quarter in the metre and just sit here. And that's occupation. Now it's an organised global event, which more seems like involvement. So almost it's sort of taken away from the, this, this element of tactical urbanism, which really operates on a, a spectrum of unsanctioned versus sanctioned. 
And I really feel where the community projects shine is that they're just, um, a gentleman made a point up there before is that they're, they're, they're done for that experience of community and shared experience, which is a really sort of important thing as they get more momentum, they start being used by corporate brands or they start to be used as tools to support, to sell a product, to sell a development product. So um, I guess my question for you is that um, do you find that as we sort of move forward in tactical urbanism, is it a question of of, of drawing the lines of, of, of the various different subsects of it um, as opposed to looking at it as a global way to, to sort of push the story forward. That's your <laughs> I'm not sure where to start. Um, <laughs> well, so the parking day, and I could talk to you for another two hours about parking day, um, it, it's interesting that you say it's a, an organised movement because it's not. So Reba, who started parking day, no, no longer exists. Um, half of Reba are now Gel USA, so they have become a, a big... Kind of Gel 2.0 in yeah, a way. Yeah, they have become a very large corporate urban design firm and then the other part is a small-scale public art practice. Um, but neither half is running Parking Day anymore. It's very free freewheeling. It's just the third Friday in September and people do it when they want to do it. Um, it is organised in some places. So Montreal, for example, has um, an environmental organisation coordinates it, so they have hundreds of people do it every year. That's unusual. Most places it's, it's very grassroots. Um, sorry, I've forgotten exactly what your question was. Um, I, I guess it's very unpredictable, uh, and maybe that's the, my point for you, that it, it's surprising. Um, the thing that surprises me is you, so as Lee said, I started out with parking days as a punching bag, as a, you know, the thing that's being corporatised, the thing that Adelaide has gone and turned into this formulaic thing that you do, the thing that's become parklets that are in gentrifying areas, and there's, there's so many negative things you can say about it. But then I go and speak to people that have done it, and there's so many amazing stories that come out of it, of people that say, I did parking day, and that changed my view, and then I did this, and then I did this, and then I did this. Um, it, it's very hard to know what's going to come out of something um, until afterwards and, and maybe a lot afterwards. Um, I, I, I guess that's why we didn't get very far in analysing things because it's also um, unpredictable. Good. Well, you've answered your two questions. You've got a twofer, my question and his question. So what about the other two? So, so, okay, so for me, um, I went backwards. So... Uh, what I become interested in, I guess, is you know, coming coming from architecture um, and thinking about a lot of these practices and how they relate to um, you know what architectural practice is, what architecture is and does. Um, started to look back at the history of, of some of these kinds of practices that you know kind of sprouted now, um, often as Using words like innovation, disruption, and so on, and I got very interested in some particular histories to these practices, and so that that's become my focus. And in a sense, it's kind of tracking back this idea that emerges, say, in the 60s and 70s. Of, you know, is there an is there an architecture? And does this kind of practice constitute that? Kind of constitute that? Timothy, the last word. Yeah, um, I guess. 
from my background and my profession, I work with a lot of developers and also local government um, in delivering what you call placemaking. I just call it architecture and urbanism, but placemaking per se. And it was always like, oh, that's the fun stuff that you kind of sprinkle in between the serious big buildings, you know, these big urban development projects. And what I found in my research looking at temporary projects within long-term urban development frameworks is that actually sometimes the temporary things become very permanent and these large permanent things actually never arise. All these master plans and vision documents and million-dollar consultation projects uh, to lead into the multi-billion-dollar projects may not actually occur except on a piece of paper. So I found that um, temporary and permanent things are very different things but can work together and I, I feel like it's, uh, temporary projects are still underestimated in, in their potential. Well, I'd like to thank you for complicating our view of um, temporary interventions, um, perhaps uh, leading us to a bit less clarity but a bit more um, excitement and interest in these um, uh, ideas. And I know I'll look at Parking Day a little differently now. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.